Hello and welcome to the Undead Wookiee Podcast. And on this episode, we will be taking a dive into Dario Argento's classic 1970s giallo, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast focusing on horror and sci-fi, but there will be times where we dip into other genres because here at the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. Hello and welcome back. I'm so excited to bring you this episode. Um, I've got a really, really awesome special guest and we really do really go deep into this one. I'm so pleased with how it's come out. Um, Great film, uh, great guest. So I'm going to shut up now and uh, let's check out the trailer and then let's dive into our review. I'm Inspector Morosini. I want to know everything you saw and heard. I can't pin it down. There was something wrong with it, something odd. There is a dangerous maniac at large in this city. Do you really love me? Sure. Just before we closed, we saw that painting that was in the window. Did you make the sale? I know. The poor girl did. Last night, a blonde, 28, lived alone. The press are beginning to put two and two together. They think they see a link between the four murders. No! 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 I feel that I'm getting closer to the truth every minute. That's why he's trying to kill me. This damn thing is turning into an obsession. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen, and I am joined, well, by, well, it seems like forever since the last time my guest was on. In fact, when I looked, it was almost a year to the, not far off from last time that we had this very, very special guest on. I am talking about the one, the only, Mr. Bill Van Vegel. How the devil are you, sir? I'm doing great. We are just telling stories of family and our countries and 20 centimeters of snow and how we survive as teachers and if the audience could only hear the back talk yes you you would I, actually probably lose people <laughs> yeah I, I don't think there's many there to begin with but uh, we've got to try and cling on to what we got oh That's man it. thank you so much for being on it's it's great having you back and it's Not great problem. catching up not a problem. I love chatting with you here and there, but every once in a while, it's nice to actually talk on point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are talking about um, quite a special film, actually, in so many ways, in that it is the debut movie of legendary Italian filmmaker Dario Argento. We are talking The Bird with the Crystal Plumage from 1970. How do you feel about this one, Bill? We're talking about where the 
archetype to me of a giallo, a modern giallo begins. Yes. And and we can get into that conversation later, but this is kind of where anybody that isn't familiar with Argento, I always say, you know, you always point them to two or three films. Yeah. This is the one I say, watch first. I, I would not send him to Suspiria first. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wouldn't send him to opera first. I'm going to send them to this. Yes. Yes. Um, I think this is the most straightforward of his films. Yes, in perhaps. Ter- in terms. Ter- I was going to say Cat on Nine Tails wasn't that far off either, but. No, no. <laughs> This one was a. This one is almost a straight-ahead mystery crime serial. Yeah, and I think the word, the one thing when I sort of like, I was sort of doing some reading around and sort of you know refresh because I hadn't watched this. The last time I actually watched Bird of the Crystal Plumage, I was in university, um, and I borrowed a, a VHS copy of it uh, from the the university's library, and. Um, it's sort of I, I'd forgotten sort of just how sort of Hitchcockian it is. Well, um, I, I, I made a note. It's a kind of a love letter to Hitchcock and Agatha Christie. Do, do you know what? You have actually taken the words right out of my. I mean, I talk about Christie a lot anyway because both me and my wife are huge fans. My wife is like a super fan. I mean, I say this all the time. She 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 has read everything. We have our own, you know, right behind me. I know you can't see this at the moment. Behind mm. me is our actual Christie library where the, we have every single Christie that's been written is there. Um, but, yeah, it does feel Christie-like. I mean, if you um, squint enough, uh, the main police officer looks like Poirot. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? All, he could have actually, and in terms of the dubbing on his accent, mind you, it could have been David Suchet doing that. It could have, you know, with the little grey cells. The little grey cells are moving around in my head. Yeah. <laughs> so, for anybody, and I mean, I'm going to say now that, you know, this was released in 1970. So if you haven't seen it, you can either pause this episode and go back. Or, you know, we are still, you know, there will most likely be spoilers. So it was released in 19, you've had a fair amount of time to um, to watch this bad boy. Um, how would you describe the plot on this one, Bill? I would describe the plot as it's, as we we, we discussed, it's a bit of a, a Hitchcockian. It's a bit of a mystery thriller. It's a bit of a crime thriller. It's a little bit of a whodunit. And essentially what happens is there's a murder that occurs at the beginning. And you get a glimpse as to what you perceive happened. Yes. And then you follow the characters. It's almost through the lens of the main person who saw the murder and his or her journey to the end of the film to see how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. So um, obviously this was directed. This is the directorial debut of Dario Argento, um, who interestingly enough was a film critic before he became a filmmaker. Yeah, he's a film critic and a screenwriter, I believe. Yes, I think he, he did. Involved. He did some work on Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. Um, and a few others. Um, and then sort of took the plunge with this one. Oh, and, and and there's also he did somewhat some acting in this, but we can get into that later. Yeah, interesting actually. Interesting. Yeah. Quite interesting, uh, particularly when you think about the, the the sort of 
the psychological makeup of some of Argento's films or the psychological makeup of Argento itself <laughs> himself um, is quite an, is quite interesting. And, and let's not get into the use of his daughter. No, that's a whole other level of creepy. <laughs> that is <laughs> there could be a university course to itself. <laughs> I'm sure there's sort of masters uh being dissertations being written yeah. about that you know, sort of, I, I, yeah. I can see you know newcastle university's got a whole course on argento you know yeah <laughs> wow there we go <laughs> i mean um this was also directed by dario Argento. um it stars uh tony mustaine uh susie kendall enrique uh mario salerno uh, Eva Renzi and Umberto Rajo. There's a whole host of others, but they're kind of like the main body of the cast in this one. Um, and of course, you know, it's interesting because Tony Mustaine um, or Musante, is it Musante or Musante? I always Mus- said Mus- I'm Musante. I don't know. Yeah, Musante. I say Mustaine because I'm reading it here and all I'm, all I'm thinking is Dave Mustaine from Megadeth. I was going to say, do you think peace sells, but who's buying? Is that what you're looking Yeah. <laughs> So it's Tony Musante. So, so there we are. I've started butchering names already. And, and it's funny. Uh, I looked. I looked into Musante, and I thought, for someone who basically carried this film, you know, had he done a lot, a lot of American TV work. Yeah. Uh, for example, he was in the The Fugitive, Marcus Welby, The Rockford Files, Police Story, The Equalizer, Canadian television show Night Heat. Like he was in a whack of those. And apparently, he also yeah. had a small role in uh, The Pope. Of- Greenwich Village. Nice. With um, Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke, yeah. And he was in one, probably the last thing he was in is uh, that would be known as We Own the Night, the one with Wahlberg and I forget who else. Yeah, yeah. 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 But but again, I think, but he did a lot, I think, at, at, at European and Italian films. Yeah, he's, he is kind of like rent an American, wasn't he? Yes. He's sort of, you know, as, as you know, as, you know, lots of great sort of lots of great, you know, American actors that if you think John Saxon, you think about the number of Italian movies that he popped up in Fred Williamson. Um, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. You know, and because yeah, those European ones, you know, you need an American or you, or if you need a Brit in Kim Donald Pleasance. Yes. He, he suddenly <laughs> was thrust into the role, you know. Yes. Yeah. And there are certain ones that he pops up in, um, Donald Pleasance, where he looks completely bemused well, by what's what's, go- what's I, I going on was, around I him. I think was he in Paganini horror? Yes. And and they dubbed his voice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Paganini horror is absolutely batshit insane. Oh, it, it is. It makes is all over the place. No sense. No sense. No sense at all. At all. Looks great. Looks fabulous. But, other, you know. But but the other thing, Susie Kendall. I mean, Susie Kendall is when we did on Land of the Creeps, uh, which I'm on, we were did our month of horror for February, Women of Horror. Yes. And, and Susie Kendall was one I made sure I made mention of. Interesting. And, and but she was in like she wasn't just a horror actress she was all across the board she did oh yeah to yeah, serve absolutely. with love she was i think she was one of the students in to serve with love yes she was she yeah. was but she was also in a movie i saw with christopher lee psycho circus yeah yeah, yeah. the other great one she was in was um is fraulein doctor i haven't seen that one is that a, a nazi exploitation it is yeah well world war one world oh, world war one 
Um, It has probably one of the most spectacularly shot gas attack scenes. Um, It is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. It's not one of these films that's a sex film that has Germans in the background. It Uh, has an actual story to it. Kind of. Kind of. um, Essentially. I mean, I tell you, it is Nigel Green pops up in it. Um, Nigel, a British character actor, famously played um, Colour Sergeant Bourne in the in Zulu. Um, but like um, this one, she's like she's a German spy, um, and it involves a pl- um, saboteurs and something to do with Kitchener. Um, but the gas attack scene in it is shot. It's incredible. It is absolutely incredible it is probably the best thing best moment in the film um and it is absolutely stunning um it is you know and it's it's sort of it's it is like the nightmare that you would imagine what a gas attack would look like and i mean she was in torso yes yeah and i I had totally forgotten she was in barbarian sound studio I have not seen that one. Oh, you'll like it. If you, if anybody out there listening likes, you know, uh, movies that touch your senses, especially your auditory, your your audiophiles out there, Barbarian yeah. Sound Studio is uh, is a good film. Yeah, I mean, obviously, then we got Enrico Mario Solano, and you got a little bit of a a take on one of his credits. Well, I was looking at his multiple films and honestly, uh, almost all of his work exclusively is either small bit parts in American films or larger uh, roles in uh, Italian films. But he had one film that he did in 1976 that I made note to uh, Hugh before called Dog Lay Afternoon. Not Dog Day Afternoon. (laughs) And and this is what made me want to watch this. I got to find it somewhere. It's got to be streaming somewhere. 1976. Janine is a girl who has been traumatized since childhood after having inadvertently seen her mother mate with the family's Doberman dog. <laughs> now, now, does it, and also, you know who wrote the how film? How do you pitch? I mean, how do you pitch George Eastman? There we George are. George Eastman. George Eastman. Yes. I mean, George Eastman is a legend. Uh, you know, I, I recently watched Hands of Steel, um, uh, and he pops up as the villain uh, in in that. I mean, how do you pitch that film? <laughs> well, who who makes this film that isn't some underground guy with a grimy stuff? Like it looks like it's got some backing to it, you know? <laughs> it does. It does look like it's actually got a bit of money behind it. It does. <laughs> Now, you've also got Eva Renzi, uh, who plays Monica, um, and then you've got Umberto Rajo, who plays Alberto Ranieri in it. Um, Eva Renzi is quite interested, actually, because she was quite scathing about this film. About, oh, I didn't uh, realize she was. She, she didn't care for the way it was directed? or She, she thought, uh, she sort of stated in an interview... Um, and I'm paraphrasing you, so if I get it wrong, please somebody come correct me. Um, is that she felt that um, the role was beneath her acting talents, and that she wasn't given the opportunity to to shine. Now, I thought it was, a, you know, I think it's a great role. It's a fabulous role. 
But um, but it's not one. It's not a role for somebody if they want a lot of screen time. No, no, no. And so it it showed her abilities, but I wouldn't say it highlighted her. Mm. No, absolutely. And I think the I think it's a theme that kind of Argento does go back to, particularly in Deep Red. Um, he sort of he sort of he does like that sort of that that, that switcheroo at times. Um, but I thought she gave a really good performance. I thought she was really really good in it. She was good, and uh, you know I think Argento over if you watch enough of his films, he likes that sexual interplay. He likes Absolutely. that. He likes that discourse between the two where they might be turned on with each other. They might, you know, hate each other. They, you know, the, the, this is a point where, you know, the women's revolution is gaining steam. He's right in on that. And yeah, it plays absolutely. Out a lot. Yeah. I think, I think some people can look, um, I think some people can look at Argento's films and the way in which that he sort of, um, his portrayal of women can be a little bit, can be seen as being problematic. Um, And I think there is that sort of sexual sadism element to some of his films. But then if you look Uh, at, say, Deep Red, I mean, the undertone of feminism is undeniable. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's that's why I think that argument kind of falls down a little bit. Um, Look at us talking about sort of psychosexual politics on the undead Wookiee. See, see, anybody, (laughs) anybody looking for that university course, here is the preview. (laughs) <laughs> that, that sort of almost like his male car- characters are are almost impotent because they never quite solve anything they never no. quite sort of get the job done themselves I mean, per- particularly in a film like tenebrae you know yeah oh god yeah yeah you know absolutely absolutely and i think even though i think this is probably in terms of the level of violence that we kind of expect from an Argento film. This is kind of lower down. Yeah, this this doesn't have a lot of graphic scenes, but that's not no. to say that the kills aren't done important. Like they, they they have an importance to them. They're just not, you know, the the graphic nature that you would get in say ten years later in Tenebrae. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I think the sort of his exploitation here or. I think exploitation and exploration of sort of masculinity um, and femininity and the sort of the sort of um, ideas of that, you know, actually is our lead is our lead hero, our male protagonist. Is he actually in charge of anything? No, he's not. Is he solving anything? No, he's just running around, just blundering into things time and time and time and time again. And as he's still blundering around, the bodies are still piling up. And then actually the person who's doing the killing is, is the, you know, has been essentially pulling the strings is, is, is the, is the, is the female, is the, is the female villain. Um, and that's quite an interesting take. It is quite an interesting one. It's sort of, you know, Monica Ranieri, you know, she, she throws, she's no longer a victim. Um, I mean, I think the psychology on it all, is that, uh, given an explanation at the end of it, maybe a little bit iffy. <laughs> but but I think, you know, 50 some odd years later, you know, the, the little twists they have, looking back, you're going, that took some forethought. That, you know, that it's no amateur 
scribbling down a, a, a screenplay for this. No, you know, absolutely. like he obviously everybody always says your debut album as a musician, you had your lifetime to write your next one. You have 15 months. Yes. Like it's the same thing. He's had a whole lifetime to come to this one. Yes. And so he, it was meticulously laid out. Yeah. Now I his mean, the, the quality of his films afterwards go towards his uh, ability as a writer. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I think you're right there. And I think obviously, I think it's fair to say that his most recent efforts have um, been a little bit more missed than hit. Oh, I, I would say his last film of true quality was Stendhal. Stendhal yeah. Syndrome. Yeah, yeah. I think Although right his there. his most recent film, I didn't mind, actually. Dark, still haven't seen it. I Dark Glasses. I haven't got around to it yet. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. It's better than probably the previous three or four. I mean, the I mean, I kind of the last real sort of moment where I think our most recent ones was Dracula, um, and I it was a struggle. Did you see? It was a uh, struggle. Did you see um, Phantom of the Opera? No, I didn't. That's that's another. Uh, let's shall we say interesting film. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> Now, now the other thing, uh, you know, this is a film to spoil a little bit. You know, I absolutely adore this film, but every time I watch this film, there's little things I pick up that I didn't know. Mm. So, for example, I didn't realize the book was loosely based on a novel. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, um, um, it's I got it here. It's Screaming Mimi. Screaming um, Mimi, which was a, it's a pulp. Uh, it's a pulp novel by Fre- um, Frederick, Frederick Brown. Yeah, Frederick Brown. And that actual movie uh, came out as, a, or that actual book came out as a movie in 1958 called The Screaming Mimi. Right. With okay. uh, Anita Anita Eckbert was in that. Good actress. Yeah. And really but, good actress. So I think this was Argento's interpretation of that film. Oh, sorry, of yeah. that book. Yeah, yeah. I tell you what's really interesting about this, and it didn't click until I was sort of going through the. Is that um, uh, Vittorio um, St- uh, Storaro, um, yeah. who was the DP on this, was also the DP on Apocalypse Now. Well, he won Vittorio. Star- I looked him up before we got out here. He's won three Oscars. Yeah. For cinematography on Apocalypse Now, Reds, and The Last Emperor. Last Emperor is stunning. Beautiful film. Done in. Say what you like about it. I mean, it's boring as hell. It's times. long. It, That's one of those three-hour. It feels like seven. One of yeah, those it, kind of it's an arse number. Yeah. It is a proper bum number. But uh, but it's stunning. He, he also did Ishtar. Yeah. And and Tucker, a man in his dream. <laughs> the extremes. Extremes. But the extremes. Now, somewhere in between, he was the cinematographer for the Dune TV miniseries of 2000. They were pretty good, actually. They so, good. you know, so you got both ends and then you kind of got Dune thrown in there. You know? Yeah. Well, I think you'd be wrong not to throw a bit of Dune in there, wouldn't it? Really? <laughs> but he also did a lot of Italian, you know, uh, domestic yeah. films and things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Italian mm. sort of um, film industry, um, you know, from about the 50s onwards, really, right up until, you know, probably up to now, actually, 
it does it you know it's a big industry and they do it they churn out a lot of domestic content um you know I mean, some you, of it you, good some of it not so good i mean it's like any other national theater setup where there's a there'll be a lot of actors that get a lot of work in italy that don't make it outside of absolutely italy, absolutely you know? absolutely now bird of the crystal plumage is is the first obviously of Argento film, but it's also the first in his um his animal trilogy um the other even though they're not related they and in, in the same way like with Fulci's um uh gates of hell gates of hell trilogy oh, just stunning um with the of course there was the cat of nine tails 1971 and then you had the four flies on gray velvet which i love the title of that it's i mean it's a great film it is a great film yeah, but a, I love it, how, that, that's the one of the three that's probably the toughest to get a hold of yeah four flies yeah it's not yeah i think you can get i think it's available on amazon um i think i think in the uk in the uk i think you can you can you can stream it on there however the one thing you've got to love about giallo's is the titles oh for for, you know my favorite one is your vice is in a locked room and i hold the key and only i hold the key yeah and yeah which you know is a great title i I was i was like i think it's martino did Strip nude for your killer. Yes, I was about to say that yeah. is. <laughs> or, or the the one is uh, the killer reserved nine seats. Yeah, there's the one in the theater. Like, okay, I'm gonna kill them and then I'm gonna plop them down in their seat at the theater. You know. Absolutely, absolutely. So much good, it, yeah. It's such a good. It, well, what, it's one of the such an interesting genre. One of the films that Susie Kendall was in that uh, is, hey, it's a middling uh, giallo is uh, Spasmo. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You want to go see a movie called Spasmo? I don't, you know, I don't know. Take the family to that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, and the other thing about these is it's very similar probably to the actual gialli, the uh, pulp book. Yes. Because the title was just to get you to read the book. Yeah, absolutely. So the title of the film, they don't necessarily correlate to what's going on in the movie. No, 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 absolutely. And I mean, like, um, the it's almost like, you know, the, the, when you, you look at the paperback from hell novels, you know, that cover is, you know, there to draw you in. You look sure. at like the like the paperbacks from like uh, authors like Guy N. Smith or um, Sean Hudson, and you look at those covers, and it's like, oh my God, there's a flaming skull dripping with ooze, and the eye is popping out, and you just think, I've got, you know, I I, I must read this, this, and then it's like, ah, oh, okay. Well, That's I mean, so it's fun. like it's it's like a Roger Corman film or something. Like, oh yes, you do yeah, you absolutely. do the you do the you do the poster. And then you design your movie around the poster. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the other uh, key element that we need to talk about in this, and I think it's absolutely, it's it's a really, really important element in this film, is, of course, the music is by the maestro himself, Ennio Morricone. Oh, beautiful. It's a beautiful. And a lot of people, you know, when they think of Argento, they automatically flip to Goblin. Yes. And, And for good reason. I, yeah. Goblin are a gold standard to themselves, but Maricone, yes. you know, he's almost, you know, he is his own version of a gold standard. Like he's 
Absolutely. You, know, you, you talk about, you know, Hammerstein and these kind of, you know, uh, Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, he's right there. His work is is incredible. Is it, it's 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 so layered. It's so layered. It is. Um, there is it. It's almost a character in itself. Yes. It is almost a character within itself. And I think the other thing that it gives this this particular film is when we talk when you, when you, when you talk about particularly in film theory about diegetic and non-diegetic sounds. The the so diegetic sound is what um the characters within the film world will hear uh non-diegetic sound is the sound that we just hear so the so the scores and those kind of things um the the creepiness of this almost sort of like free-flowing jazz yeah that is well, it, it, I, was, I, I almost wrote that down as i watched it last night at certain points it feels like miles davis Yes, and, and at other points, it feels more like a Western film. Like, yeah. like he's got that range. I love watching a Morricone film when there's a chase scene. Yeah, because you know that the piano score is gonna just be intense. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I mean, that's, there's that whole scene here where he goes through the uh, bus depot. Yeah. Now that scene in itself is so clever. It is so clever. And the fact that this killer is there in a bright, he's chasing, you know, he's being hired by the killer to bump him off. And he is chasing him with a silence pistol through all the, you know, through the the bus state. And again, people talk about the color choices in Argento's film. And I think it kind of peaks pretty much with Suspiria where we get those full blown, um, primary colors but here we get these muted earthy tones particularly in in costume with the exception of this guy who's got a bright yellow jacket which again is is a nod to the jallo the yellow paper when he pops into that uh you know the uh meeting where he is all the other i'm like yeah. Is it the convention of the yellow jacket men? Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. The, he chases, you know, he's chased him all around. He's got this bright yellow jacket with a number eight on the back. And then I, half, I, I, I was going to say, do you know what it represented? I don't have a clue. Um, the jacket, I don't think, is anything significant. The, the, I mean, the color of the jacket is significant because obviously, like you said, the jolly, the book, yeah. the books were printed on yellow paper. I thought maybe it's, it was a European thing I wasn't aware of. I didn't know what that was. The jacket is like is pretty is is to do with like the the um the color of the paper that the the the, the pulp paper the cheap paper that the jolly were were printed on. So it's a little bit of a little bit of an in joke there. Okay. But then it, it, it was yellow jacket and blue hat. Yes, and then he chases him. Somehow Sam uh, turns the tables on him and then starts following him. And then he opens the door and everybody behind that door is wearing a jacket. And it's the it was a boxing convention. It was a prize it was, it was fight. A boxing? It was a boxing convention. Because at one point I was trying to understand, uh, there was somebody at the front speaking. I was trying yes. to decipher his little speech to the, and I'm like, forget it. I'm not going to. No. Now, did we actually give a synopsis to the audience so they have any idea what this film's about? 
Um, no, I, we just dive straight in. So just do you want to give us <laughs> give us a little give us an well, idea? I, I I always go by the IMDb, which is you know good or bad. Yeah. An, an American expatriate in Rome attempts to unmask a serial killer whom he witnessed in the act of an attempted murder and is now hunting him and his girlfriend. Now, for an IMDb plot description, that's pretty good. That's not bad. You could stick that on the back of a blockbuster box yeah, and it's still absolutely. Works. Absolutely. Um, and it kind of sub- encapsulates this. It encapsulates the film quite nicely. Mm. Now, I think it, we would be remiss <clears throat> if we did not talk about that opening scene in now, the gallery. I was going to say, are we talking about when the film initially opens with the typewriter? I mean, that's great. That is phenomenal. That is phenomenal. I love I love that opening. Literally, where all you see is the perspective of somebody wearing black gloves, a black trench coat, very black background, and then this brilliant red cloth. And you get this this knife set and you and you hear the Morricone, just the typesetter, the typewriter yes. printing. Oh, it is brilliant. Yes. And I mean, what's interesting is is Argento talked about being bored with Barber's take on the genre. Now, Mario Barber, of course, I think his Blood and Black Lace is just stunning. It is absolutely stunning and is is a brilliant in 1964 um, is a brilliant, brilliant giallo. But you could almost you could almost see where this is Argento's take on Blood and Black Lace. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you've got that idea because obviously the killer is stalking models and, you know, and the, the look, the look is the same, a very, very similar look to Blood and Black Lace. And, and it's a police criminal. It's a police serial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, same as it was six years earlier. Yes, a, 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 what the Italians call the polizia. Polizia. Uh, yeah. Um, but what's really, really interesting is because, of course, there were other giallos before this. Like I just said, we had Barber's Blood and Black Lace and other directors had done them. So, you you know, Umberto Lindsay had done one. Um, Antonio Margaretti um, had done them. Um, but actually, Bird's really really kicks off that almost like second wave of giallo but i think i will argue with anybody that this set the template for the modern realization and uh, popularity of giallo yeah i think you're absolutely right i think i think you know the foundations were laid by bava whereas then argento built the house on top of it which then becomes, you know, becomes the absolute, the absolute pinnacle of it. And I think this and Deep Red are probably, I, I, I probably the ba- two, two best, maybe. I, I bounce back and forth as to which I like better. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think on any given day you could probably go, but you, you could probably say, oh, Deep Red is this, and then you go, yeah. oh, you, oh, maybe. So if if maybe you're looking. Just, if you're looking for the supernatural end of it, the more slightly more horrific end of it, you go to Deep Red. If you're looking yeah. for kind of like just an interesting character-driven action movie, you go to Crystal Plumage. Yeah. It just depends on your mood for the day. Absolutely. I, I think I think you're right there. I think if you just want 
Would you even count Suspiria as a Jalo? No, I never have. And I am not going to my uh, Suspiria discussion. Anybody who's listened to me at all knows I think it's the most overblown film. I love Argento, but Suspiria, if I never see again, I'll be a satisfied man. <laughs> and thus we move swiftly along. <laughs> now, the other thing I made note of, I know this is 1970, but yeah. even for 1970, the budget was only half a million dollars. That's not bad. You know, that, and I, you, know, you think about it like Italian cinema. That's not bad. No, because I'm thinking, I'm give inflation. I'm thinking four to five million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and he did the most. He got so many talented people involved. He either must have got them on a cut rate, or maybe he tied them into how much the money would make at a percentage. I don't know how they did it. No, I mean he has got <laughs> he has got a great great team around him. What's really interesting, he had a really shit time making this film. He had a really really difficult time making this film. He um. He fell out with a producer, uh, which was uh, Godfredo Lombardo. Fell out with him big time um, during it. Because um, essentially, obviously, it was, this was his first film. Yeah. And what Argento did, is he storyboarded everything. And he uh, had a shot list that he stuck to religiously, which meant that things took longer than sort of most Italian producers would have been happy with. Also, apparently he was, you know, um, Lombardo was not happy with the dailies that he was seeing. And it actually took Argento's father paying a visit because obviously his father was, I think his father was also a director, um, was went to the studio and whilst he was in the office, so the story, story goes, the, 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 one of the Lombardo's secretary was quite visibly upset and, you know, he says to him, what's, he says to her, what's the matter? And she said, oh, I've just seen this film. You know, we've just done a test screening of this film. And he was bird with a crystal plumage. And it's so upset her and disturbed her. And he was like, well, you've got to go tell him that. And that kind of got, got Lombardo off Argento. Because at one point they were considering replacing him. Really? They were they were considering replacing him. Um, But the other one that, he, that Argento really struggled with uh was tony uh, Mas- uh musante um and some of the other actors on the film talked about <clears throat> that he was quite difficult to work with um and quite arrogant at times uh, but he would do things like he would pop up he would just appear at Argento's door at three o'clock in the morning wanting to discuss character development and things um, i mean i mean that's, i find that interesting because it's not as if tony musante was sophia loren it's no. not as if he was Tony Curtis. Like, no. he's, you know, he's good actor, but he's character, you know, working man's actor. Yeah, he's so a job where, actor. Where he has the cojones to kind of, you know, maybe it's because he's his first time director. I don't know. Yeah. And like, I think sort of um, Susie Kendall talked about him being quite difficult on set uh, and quite argumentative um, and not one to really, really take direction. So there's quite so there was quite a bit of back and forth um, with Argento and, uh, you know, uh, and sort of members of the cast being quite unhappy. So he had a really difficult time getting this one done. Really and, and difficult might, time. And might I say, I'm not saying this because I'm sexist, but Susie Kendall looked great. She looked fantastic. Yeah, she did. She looked spectacular. But she actually added a lot to the character. Like her acting came through. 
Yeah, because sometimes the girlfriend roles tend to be a little bit late. Throw away. Throw away. Literally. Yes. Literally. Yeah, quite. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, and they kind of sort of always feel, but she, she felt like a real character. Yeah, she had it. she had some drive to her. Like at certain points, she was motivating Musante to get out and do stuff, you know? Yes. Yeah. 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 Now, obviously, we talked about that, that opening um, and the sort of the beautiful red colors in that. And then we come to the that sort of the first attempted kill, I suppose. The thing, you know, that moment that puts everything into motion. The you know the famous art gallery moment where the character of Sam is walking past and he happen you know and it's very dark. There are moments in this film that are pitch black, utterly pitch black, and he's walking past and like a shining beacon, he sees this art gallery, which is almost sort of um, surgically sterile in 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 its colours. Um, and well, it's, he, it's very no, noticeably white. Yes, and then he and then he sees the struggle on top of the stairs, and then rushes over. Um, it's a phenomenal scene. It, phenomenal. it is one of the best openings. I've, you know, I, I'll argue with any film. Like, fantastic. And you could almost say it's, it's quite multi-layered. It's quite multi-layered as a scene. You could you could read it as as a uh, as almost like a meta take on the artist struck you know stuck um watching you know sort of not having no voice within the, within you, the you, industry the the viewer is in the character of musante at that point yes yeah absolutely you're very much sure now, now i don't know about you like every time i watch it do you not feel like you're jimmy stewart yeah in rear window or yeah, or the actor in peeping tom like you're you're absolutely. that guy yeah. You're, you're, yeah you're almost screaming and you you feel for him he's trying to do the right thing he yeah. just can't and so he's helpless he's vulnerable and so are you as an audience member and that you know when you look it's quite interesting actually because argento goes back several art ah, pops up in a number of his films oh yeah um it's almost sort of like they they almost like sort of magical totems in his films um but like the sort of you get this white and then you get the blood you know the the, the red of the blood from where she's been stabbed and she's screaming for his help and there's nothing he can do until somebody else again it goes back to that sort of um emasculation of of his lead character that he that he is totally helpless that he is that, stuck I mean, between two panes of glass the color scope is just brilliant you, oh. you basically have, being as it is an art gallery, you have a white canvas background. Yeah. That's what you have. And the the Susie Candle, not Susie Candle, uh, who's the actress? Susie, uh, Lindsay? Yes. Renzi? Renzi? Uh, Eva Renzi. Eva Renzi. She's wearing a white dress. Yeah. And, and you get the blood. Like, it's, you couldn't, Jackson Pollock couldn't have done it any better. No, no, no. And I, I, I it. And I suppose that is the thing with this, isn't it? Because we get the dark and we get this low key light in with the exception of these spots of light where we then get the blood and the splatter of the blood. It's sort of and it's very red. And, and for those that haven't seen it, you see Musanti witnesses this evil act occurring in front of him. And you've got two panes of glass in front of the art gallery. He can't get in. The door won't open. 
He feels helpless. He sees this damsel in distress bleeding out in front of him, and he's frustrated. And this is obviously pre-internet, pre-cell phone. He's just got to wait for somebody to flag down the police. And because of the thickness of the glass, she's screaming, and you could hardly hear her. He's shouting, and you could hardly hear him. It's it's um it's it's absolutely fascinating. It's brilliantly, brilliant, brilliantly like, shot. Like if I was doing film school, I would show this first year. This is how you build the suspense, and this is how the hook to suck people in. Absolutely, absolutely. It is it it is a wonderful scene, and like. Obviously, what we get throughout this film is Argento, as a director, kind of he, he kind of arrives fully formed because we even though we sort of we don't get that sort of the, the full blown sort of psychedelia or some of his other films. Um, but he's his visual style is already developed. We get the sort of we get the swooping cameras, we get the 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 the. The, the the fast end the you know the the quick cuts the you know the, the color palette palette is it, it's all there he arrives kind of fully formed i mean he he's also good at knowing when to show a close up of a face yes and, and when to pull away he's really yeah. great at showing the long shot yet closing in on you can see if a guy needs a, a beard shave yes like he's 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 really good at doing and but it's done with purpose. Nothing's a throwaway with Argento. No, no. And I think the other thing, again, there's a theme that is eyes. Is is eyes and the close-up of the eyes, particularly in the final sequences, the close-ups of Sam's eyes are there, um, which kind of ties in with the theme of, like, a lot of his stuff, of voyeurism. Voyeurism. And he's also great at point of view and choosing whose point of view to see at what time. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if, like oftentimes, for example, in this one, at the beginning, you were looking down on somebody on a typewriter with a knife set in front of them. Later in the film, when somebody gets a stab to the neck, you see from above. So you don't see what's there until yes. you need to. Yes, absolutely. And the low. And I mean, like, like I, mean, I, I keep going back to like this low key lighting that he uses in it. Now. The reason why you would use low key lighting is to sort of make sure that you know to draw attention to the sort of darker darker elements of it but what we almost get is like this idea of the, what you know this sort of binary opposition of of dark and light because actually the characters spend a lot of their time when they're walking in the dark they cross over into the light where you would think oh i'm safe but actually what we are getting is this we get this this is where we see the explosion of violence we, it's right there in front of us so we have this sort of you have the dark and the light and where you think actually the dark is probably more scary because obviously they're binary opposites of each other but they cross over and we see the violence in full is fully lit yeah i mean the the opening scene where it's i mean i don't know it's 10 o'clock at night Yes. Yet it's happening in front of a white studio for all the world to see. Yeah, absolutely. He's not afraid. He's not afraid for horror in daylight. Like he just isn't. No, and I mean the you know the, obviously the, there's the 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 straight razor kill. Yep. Um, which is probably the most the most brutal. It, of it, the you know, it, it, it was almost proto slasher. You could see, yes. you know, maybe not Michael Myers, but somebody of that ilk just slashing away. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there was I think there was literally blood dripping off the razor blade. Yeah, yeah. And that's fully lit. Yep. That's fully lit. So he is taking, you know, that, that that use of low-key lighting, we think, is, is for drawing our attention to the dark side of things. But actually, what Argento is doing, he is lighting the violence and putting it right there for everyone to see. It's, it's right there in everybody's face. Yeah. And then uh, from there, we kind of get introduced to uh, Salerno, just kind of stumbles upon the scene. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I, I made a note somewhere. I, I can't remember if I can find it, but... I'm almost wondering if the director of Columbo kind of looked at this first. <laughs> Shorter man, trench yes. coat, always happens to hang around, always has some sort of clue. Yeah. You know? Have you noticed how useless this guy is on television, though? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, towards the end, when they're when everything's wrapped up and they're talking to the TV presenter and he goes, you know, what really happened? Well, I don't know. Why don't you talk to the psychologist? He'll yeah. tell you what's going He's on. He's almost asleep in the chair. <laughs> he was kind of like, a, oh, 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 right. Uh, oh, well, well, there was, you know, there you was. Know. He, gives a, he, give, he gives a few facts and then passes the buck. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, but he's, I, I really like him as a character because, you know, he comes across as a bit of a bumbling buffoon at times. Absolutely. But he's there. He's got a certain cadence to the way he talks. The way he delivers a line, very calming, yeah. not threatening. He yes. even says, "Go ahead, call the consulate in the office. I don't care. I'm going to be sitting right here." You know. Yeah. How many? You know. I wonder how many breaches of the Human Rights Act did they? Uh, did they? Did they just took his passport off here and put him in a put it in a drawer. Yeah. <laughs> well, know? that's it. And the girl and the girlfriend's more aggressive with him than he is. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. However, here's the other thing. There, there is one scene that. When it it only just really really clicked with me, um, but it had me laughing out loud, but also my toes curling, um, with how sort of politically incorrect and how it could potentially be quite offensive during this during this 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 our particular time period is the police lineup. <laughs> yeah um I, i'm gonna leave that yeah what he said you know, <laughs> they did but there's something really quite important actually about yeah. that there's a shot in it there is a long shot and it's to the back of the um of the lineup and the i'm gonna say this now the usual suspect are stood uh, in the lineup, if you look at that that the frame of the lineup from the long shot where you've got the the you got the detective and Sam framed in the middle, you have the sus the usual. I'm going to keep saying coming back to this. The usual suspects on top of the stage, the lighting, the color palette. Almost, with the exception of the one character at, uh, on the one side, are framed exactly as the lineup of the usual as the as the film The Usual Suspect. Do you think they had to uh, ask for permission to be able to do such? Well, I think it, it, it's more of an homage. Homage, uh, okay. However, the line of "Bring in the perverts." Yeah. I. St- 
I did start chuckling. And then where he says, I've told you before to separate the transvestites from the perverts. <laughs> well, well, the, I was about to bring up that we talked about how sometimes Argento was ahead of the curve. In his films in the first half of the 70s, yes. he was not afraid to use homosexual characters. No, no, absolutely not. And, and very interestingly way. Like, mm. not throw away. Like, important. Anybody who's part of the LGBTQ community and you don't know Argento's films, absolutely. you're going to love the way they're portrayed with... They're almost the foil to the bumbling lead character. Yes, and I mean, the... Um... And did you know the name of the the trans person uh, that was brought out the car? What what they actually what, oh, what they called? I, I can't remember. I can't recall. Ursula Andres. Oh, Ursula Andres. That's right, Ursula Andres. And I started thinking, uh, no, not quite that good a resemblance, but you know. no, no. But that that sort of it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Something that potentially at that time could have been seen as being quite progressive. Looking at the framing of it now could yeah. be seen as quite pejorative. Yeah. But I also found it interesting that the transvestite character was like, yeah, I deserve to be with the tra transvestites. Yeah. I don't belong to be with these perverts. Absolutely. So Absolutely. almost almost that they thought being a, a transsexual was a higher social status than being a pervert. Yeah. Like they had their own class system, which, it, you know, guys and girls, you can do a whole university course – just on this, it, it's an amazing scene that you just you can't miss. It, it is it is a you know, Bird of the Crystal Plumage is a fascinating, fascinating film um, that you will go back to, you will pick over the bones over it, you can discuss it to the nth degree. Um, as we are, as we currently are, and you will always go back and you will always find something new. The other thing I want to say is, I, I love Muzanti's uh, jacket. I said to my wife actually, I I, I really like his jacket. <laughs> I, my dad used to have one that was maybe, uh, you know, uh, a, a little past the hip, but he yes. had a very similar orange tie-up jacket, and they don't sell them anymore. I mean, if somebody actually put them out. Probably make a, a few a few shekels off that. I, I I'm sure you I'm sure you could. I'm sure I, it's such a you know it is. But that's the thing, isn't it? The, the the styling of the characters in pretty much most of the most not all in most of the of Argento's film are pretty spot on. Yeah. Everybody does look very very cool. They look good. They sound good. And again, Argento does not have very many throwaway characters. They're always no. there for a purpose. They further the plot. They're a uh, red herring. They've got something to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean I go ahead. Yeah. Go on, no, no, go on. Go, go I was say. just going to say this kind of leads to the next part of the film with another, what I found fascinating uh, LGBTQ character, which was the store clerk at the antique store. Yes, yes. It, I suppose he's sort of, um, I mean, sort of, he, he's almost, I suppose he's put there to be kind of ambiguously homosexual or well, not. I, I, at a certain point, did it not become apparent that he thought that Nuzante was good looking and Nuzante was kind of hustling away from him? Yeah. <laughs> he does a lot of that, though, doesn't he, for a yeah. lead? 
even like even you know there's obviously you get the scene where we discover the painting yeah um and then Great artwork. i would love a print of that painting yeah it's fascinating i'm sure there's got to be like there's got to be you've got to be able to sort of find that somewhere he's got somebody's got a reprint of it somewhere yeah and like the um you got the, the, the but he sort of he, he finds himself backing away and being really uncomfortable around people and yes. then later on when he goes to see the painter of the, the you know the of of the original paint you know that he then spends that his time there being really uncomfortable and backing away from him he, you know he's he's hardly the sort of um he's hardly sam spade is no, he? i mean I mean, for those listening, Musante ends up becoming his own Magnum PI, trying to figure this out and yes. make a, see what's going on. Yes. But he's he's not quite as doesn't have as much bravado as characters in other films. Let's just say that. No, no, no. But it, but but I wrote down uh, the store clerk reminded me of the character that Bronson Pinchot played in Beverly Hills Cop. Search. 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 <laughs> Was I the only one that, that that popped in my mind? Kind of ambiguously homosexual, you know, but still a great character, a positive yes. guy, you know, just, you know, he will help you. And I think he could have probably gotten some uh, antiques at a good price if he did a little bit of flirting. You know? I'm sure he could have. I'm sure he could have. <laughs> character Search. Bronson Pinchot. It's, it's interesting character actor. Really, interesting, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm, Bronson Pinchot did a series of um, audio books, post-apocalyptic audio books um, that are really, really popular amongst the uh, prepper community. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the name for them now, but they're absolutely ridiculous. And you just think, how have they got Bronson Pinchot doing doing this? I mean, I mean, I can't look at him and not think of Balky, right? That's what you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Anyways, I just got. I was sitting there going, you know, the, the gummies hadn't kicked in yet, so I, you know, I was, <laughs> I was good. <laughs> I still think you were a, you were either incredibly brave or incredibly stupid taking gummies and watching Argento. <laughs> well, I was very tired, and I wanted to be able to drift away. I well, drift yeah, <laughs> drift away to where? Who knows? But <laughs> um... but yeah, but it was. In some ways, like it enhanced it because of the color palette and the the Absolutely. auditory, Absolutely. and and, it, and and Argento is very much a director for the senses. Completely. You know, and, and he'll he'll do things where the scene is completely silent, and there'll be some kind of wind blow in the background, or something will drop, and, or you'll hear like a bike crank, or and it's there for a purpose. Well, I mean, if you think about like the the key clue to the bird with the crystal plumage is is a uh, is an audio say you know it's a diegetic sound it is you know the 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 police are running you know using their their most up-to-date technology to analyze the sounds of the calls from the killer um and it takes um sam's friend to work out that's a siberian such and such yeah, it's, it's Siberian. It, I actually wrote down what was the name of it. It's, it's the Hornetus Nivalis. Yes, there we go. <laughs> who, knew, who who knew that your publisher was also good in your scientific it, knowledge? Uh, an expert ornithologist. Ornithologist. I was trying to go. I didn't know what they were. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we get to the final scenes, 
of this, you know, the, the, the sort of, the, you know, almost like the de, the denouement of the film. Um, that scene where Julie is, uh, Julie is trapped in the apartment and the killer is trying to get in, but obviously <clears throat> can't. And the killer uses the knife to like chisel a hole through the door and look through um it's that that's a really interesting take and it, and again all feeds into like the idea of voyeurism within argento's films voyeurism and i almost wonder if uh what's his name who's the, the shining uh director kubrick. kubrick almost you know that's almost an homage to that i i definitely think that you know i think this idea of like the sort of um the killer sort of wanting to gaze on gaze into what they're actually the pain and the fear that they, they're inflicting upon i mean let's let's be frank here if you really wanted to get in you could have broken that glass yes you could have yeah, yeah so maybe absolutely. the killer was just there to put the fear of god into the Susie kendall character yeah yeah absolutely yeah. um and then we get like that there's a brilliant mo- it's quite disorientating that final chase where, oh yeah where sam has like chased the killer and then he opens the door and then it's completely pitch black with the exception of the doorway that is that he's framed within that everything else is black and then he closes the door and then we get the screen is in total darkness and then well, what I, I was gonna say if, right, I could cut, if i could if i could cut back to the previous scene what i found interesting was that Susie kendall was sitting there shivering and we, we assume she staved off the killer and then it cuts to a scene and then you see Musante. Yeah. So you're wondering, you know, it's it, it put in that seat. Of dip, is he the guy? Yeah. Like it almost yeah. played with you a little bit there. Yeah. And I, and I think it, you know, again, it's a Hitchcockian idea, isn't it? That idea of the, is this person the killer? Can you trust anybody? Yeah. That level of paranoia that's floating through it. And like, we get that moment where again, our hero enters the darkness, crosses over into the light, and he is back right where the story begins. Yeah, you're you're very you're very correct. When he gets that final chase and he goes to the apartment, it's pitch dark. Yeah, uh, but it lightens up once it starts to illuminate how the story's going to play out. It's like it it is the proverbial light bulb, isn't it? Going ping. Literally, the then, the his poor. Um, agent his poor writing you know his editor oh, yeah poor guy yeah and then he gets the you know when, when he finally you know works out who it is chases her through there and then so like we said we get that total darkness and then he re-emerges in the art studio yep. so he is completely the story has gone 360 yeah it, and then it, he gets it, the the giant display dropped on him yeah it's it, it's very much one of those ones where you see something happen at the beginning of the film and then it comes back to comes back to that. I'm thinking of like Carlito's way, you know, the beginning of Carlito's way, you see him. Yeah. Same kind of thing. It's coming back full circle. Yeah. And that and this is kind of where it devolves and you kind of it all oh, okay. This uh, it, it, he literally takes you to the last minute. Yeah. Yeah. It is it, it is it is an absolutely stunning piece of filmmaking. Uh, and might I say I was going to say we skipped over one of my favorite parts is when he goes to visit the artist. Yes. 
in that uh, I don't would you call it a hovel? Would you call it a I don't hovel, know what yes, yes. I don't know what you'd call this this artist who depicts the paint who did the painting that depicts the little stabbing in the painting that kind of gets the whole ball going. He goes to see this guy, like you'd think he's watch your Ringo Starr and that, you know, the caveman movie. You know, <laughs> like he's just sitting back there chewing on a How piece of meat. How have we gone, right? How have we gone from mentioning psychosexual politics uh, to then bringing up the Ringo Starr caveman? <laughs> but this guy's like, you here, you want to eat? Yes, I want to eat. So he's got some undetermined meat in some sort of gravy. Yes. That, that he's leaving for the dog because he doesn't want to eat that. <laughs> no. And then, the, the, essentially, it's an extended... It serves two purposes, really, doesn't it? It's that sort of, obviously, he's tracking... He needs to... He's looking for another clue. He's tracking down the artist. We get a little bit of information about the his, you know the background for the painting in that the painting depicts a real-life event that took place where the killer... Uh, where, where a girl was attacked but she survived which then actually is the reason why um, um the killer goes bonkers yep. essentially is that you know she the victim is then the killer um it, to me it was almost a scene was it furthered the plot but it was almost a bit of comedic relief and yeah and then it's essentially it's it's you know the the unidentified mystery beat turns out to be cat <laughs> yeah, it's, it reminded me of Theater of Blood. Yes, yes. You know, I think you probably got a, could have got away with if Vincent Price had shown up in his full chef outfit. Well, well if he could have been the guy in the cave. That would have yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing I found funny of this, you know, to step it back, you know, four or five minutes, Muzanti blows off having sex with Kendall to go see this artist. Yeah. Get yeah. on him. Got quite the. I wouldn't have that constitution. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, "Will you make it to the airport?" Oh yeah, yeah, honey. Don't worry. I just gotta meet this. Whatever, you know. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna just randomly drive an hour and a half into the middle of nowhere. Yeah, in the middle of in, into the Midlands to find some some structure where there's a man who doesn't even have a friggin' door. You got to go yeah. up a stair. Yeah, no. And I love the fact that, you know, that there's, even you know, as we were talking before, there's a train strike. <laughs> oh, that's so right. He, oh, the way back. He's like, he's, there's a train strike. He's like, damn it. There's a train strike. I'll get there at some point. Yeah, we got some time. Don't worry. <laughs> now, I know we've we've sort of bounced all over the place on this. And we've talked about sort of favorite. Is there a particular moment in this that really, really stands out for you? I One scene we didn't get to. Uh, that I that stands out to me is the scene towards the end where someone's hanging out a window. Yes. When when the pieces start to come together. Yeah. And, with, and one of the it, characters is hanging on, and I don't want to die, but he it's, can't it's, keep it's, the grip. Yeah, it's it's Ranieri, isn't it? It's the husband who's yeah. been covering up for her, um, and he almost gets like a Disney villain death, doesn't he? Well, that's he's except, hanging on, and he, he sort of falls into the falls off it almost reminded me of like you know like dark man or something you know one of those yes. kinds of films but i yeah. found it interesting enough that he fell to the bottom he's obviously cracked his skull just long enough to give a couple final tidbit clues and then die <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, please tell my wife i love her i was covering up for her you know that was all out of love and 
you know it's like, like the great shakespeare it's like it's like whenever you go to see shakespeare isn't it and there's the fatal lines of i'll be brief and it's like no because you know that that character it. is going to talk for at least three pages <laughs> so to me uh, between that and i love it when you finally connect the title of the film to where it plays in yes you finally get that okay why was this obscure title of okay this is where it fits in yes and it's and, and everybody just goes oh right okay there we are the, the other on. the other aspect of this film that i like is being as it's 1970 i always love he- hearing and seeing this the science of catching a criminal in 1970 yeah you know, like the like, let's go to the computer room. It's a whole wall of things spinning yes. around, and and, the, and yes. the auditory, you know, listening to one person's voice first. Yeah, and they got these, uh, you know, these recording equipment that you know look like they were doing uh, Pink Floyd to the wall. Like that's what it looks like. It was. <laughs> well, they probably were when everybody else left the room. They just sort of clicked it back on slowly, and you could hear, you know, "Wish You Were Here" playing or something. It was uh... <laughs> so, my friend. So what was your favorite part of the film? My favorite, I got a couple. Um, for me, the one scene that I just, it just blew my mind how they lit it, um, was that moment where, um, just before the straight uh, razor kill, is where the character gets into her apartment. And and I think it is the, I think it's one of those moments where Morricone, Argento, the cinematographer, the maison scene, everything is in perfect harmony, perfect harmony. And it's just that moment of where she walks into her apartment, the, um, the, 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 the lift isn't working. Surprise, surprise. She starts walking up the stairs and the stairs wind round. They're going round and round and round. And then the light on the on the floor above or two floors above goes off and then we get this shot of the camera looking down we get this extreme high angle shot looking down and and you've got the you've got the darkness above it and you've got these triangles of the stairwell and the actress is looks tiny absolutely minute underneath it all and she's looking up and it absolutely encapsulates for me that 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 the style of argento is and they're like everything just fits perfectly everything is in perfect harmony you got the you got that the score you've got the the cinematography you've got the direction it is absolutely on point it's just absolutely brilliant brilliant moment the, the other aspect to this with argento and he'd get into it in his later films is this is a very sexual, sensual film without actually showing anything. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't see, you don't see, you, know, you mean you might see Susie Kendall's cleavage or her legs, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. But there is a very understated sexuality to this film. Well, I think there is a, I think it might be uh, one of the very early UK cuts of this film. They cut 20 minutes out of it and it got a PG release. Okay. Um, I think that I think it's a UK. I'm sure it's one of the UK ones. Somebody I'm sure will be able to look it up. I think there is a there is a cut of it. They got a, they cut a big chunk out of it, and essentially got a, a PG rating. Um, because 
is you would have expected some sort of love scene with Kendall and Usante, but you yep. don't you don't nope. quite get that. You you know you get a lot of uh, canoodling, you get a lot of rolling around in bed, but you don't actually get the full on in front of his friend, which was all a bit creepy. Yes, yes, just and the guy the friend is sitting there drinking a drinking his brandy, <laughs> while they're obviously you know his hands are everywhere. And, you know, he just goes, OK, I think I'm going to go. And Musanti doesn't even say anything. He just kind of waves his hand. OK, get yeah. the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah. So that, so that is, like I said, it's the stairwells moment. Yeah. I think it's absolutely stunning. Um, I mean, obviously, it's got to be the that opening that opening uh, moment with the typewriter and the and the red, the red and the, and the sort of the, the caressing of the photos with the glove and everything just it's pure jello. It, it is pure it, jello. it is absolute brilliance. The black screen with the red cloth, with the silver sharp shining knives. And yeah. what a beautiful knife collection! That was beautiful. Yeah, and very clean. Very clean. Very. He's obviously one of those people. Like if they have a gun, they clean their gun all the time. Yeah. If they were yeah. a swordsman like yourself, he makes sure it's all oiled up. He's one of those kind of. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Or should so, I say he, he, she? She. It was she. both of them because they both did commit the commit the murders, didn't they? Um, I was going to say so, the last. I was going to say sorry. Last thing was, it, the uh, killer is coming into the apartment, banging on the door, cutting the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Would she not know that their her washroom uh, window was barred? Would she not know her own washroom window was barred? Yeah, yeah. You. Uh, Maybe you know, panic set in. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, like, one of the question is, why are they barred? They look like they're, you know, they're from a jail. Like, they're yeah. not little chicken wire. Like, these are <laughs> half inch, you know. And secondly, if it's your own bloody apartment, do you not know that it's <laughs> yeah. barred? Okay, here's the crunch question now. Okay, all right. What would you score this bad boy out of 10? Oh, it's a 10. I don't even hesitate. Yeah, I, I I think this is your archetype giallo. Yeah. You've got your police serial. You've got a couple red herrings. You've yeah. got a twist at the end. Yeah, you've got chase scenes. You've got blood. You've got a, a killer whose mask with the black glove and the trench coat. You've got multiple characters. You've got twists and turns. Yeah, for me, it's easily a 10. So it, it's a nine for me because, and the only reason I'm saying this is I love Blood and Black Lace so much. I don't okay. know if I could bring myself to just give it just that. I could. It has to be on at least par okay. with Blood and Black Lace, only because there is something about Blood and Black Lace that I just think is absolutely incredible. I think it's incredible filmmaking, but I do think... Uh, do you know what? Oh, fuck it. Yeah, no, it's a ten. I think it's a ten. I <laughs> think you are right. Twist, yeah. I, I'm not trying no, to No, no, no. You did have to. I've kind of, I've kind of convinced myself. I think this is. I think I probably would. That we said about switching back and forth on any given day. Yeah. I, th- I think it's probably slightly better than Deep Red. Oh, see, for me, the last time we did it on Land of the Creeps, I, I pumped this ahead of Deep Red. Just, you know, again, just by a hair, just by a... I think it's probably a more solid film. But of those early films, you talk Blood and Black Lace, you talk 
uh, Crystal Plumage. The other one that kind of fits in that category is Hatchet for Your Honeymoon. Yeah. It, it, it is I've the same sort of, yeah, it's the same sort of police serial chase, beautiful women get killed, 10 little yeah. Indians feel kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's a great, it, it's a great, um, it's a great one. Yeah. I tell you what we'll have to cover, you know, you've got, is, you, you, you've alluded to it there, is, I think we'll have to sit down and we'll have to sort of look at, um, and then there were none. I think we'll have I, to look at I don't at think, it. I don't think, is that the one from the 40s? That's Agatha Christie's, then there were yeah. none. Yeah, but uh, uh, what year was, there's, there's, there was a whole whack of them in the 40s and 50s, and then they. There is a, you, there is another one, I don't know whether it might be available with yours. And then, there was, it, and then she became popular again in the 70s, and then a bunch of them popped up then. Um, there is a version of it. Let's see if I can find it now. Um, with Charles Dance in it from 2015. Oh, I haven't seen that one. And it is, I think you can get it on Prime. I think you can get it on Amazon Prime. It is phenomenal. I tell you, the cast in it is um, Charles Dance, Toby Stevens, Bern Gorman is in it. Um, it's got just a brilliant, brilliant cast. Um, it's on Amazon. I think it's all available on Prime. Well, I think okay. at some point we'll have to cover that one. That the other one that's a recent Christie that I really enjoyed. I don't know if you did. Was the uh, updated version of Death on the Nile? What with Branagh? Yeah. No, I hated it. See, I didn't mind it at all. I absolutely detest <clears throat> it. Do, do you know why? Well, to to, to him, the mustache is its own character. He's not Poirot. He's, oh, he's not Poirot, no. He's not Poirot in the slight... Because Poirot, in the book, is a little man with an egg-shaped haste, uh, egg-shaped head that is tilted slightly to the side. <laughs> so he's is too not, slick for you. He's too slick. He's too action-manny. Um, David Suchet, because obviously in terms of, you know... Uh, you know um, uh, some of our uh, friends across the Atlantic and around the world may not be familiar with David Suchet, who played him um, on television and over 80, 80 episodes, pretty much covered every Poirot um, there is. He's kind of like my quintessential idea of Poirot. My wife, who is an absolute Christie purist, neither of them are her Poirot. But we both agree that Branagh is not Poirot. <laughs> See, so, I, I, I didn't mind it because I didn't mind the you know the interplay with the characters, and I didn't mind some of the twists. I mean, Branagh is a he's a phenomenal actor, and he's a phenomenal director. Um, just think he kind of got it wrong on that one. I didn't mind Murder on the Orient Express. I didn't mind that. I kind of I was able to kind of overlook some of the things. Um, but Death on the Nile. I mean, what is a really, really good version of Death on the Nile is the um version with um oh, what's his name? Didn't Peter Peter Ustinov? Yes, the Peter yeah. the Peter yeah. Ustinov version. I think that is is a re and because it's got Mia Farrow in it. Um, yeah. got another Maggie, large ensemble cast. Dame Maggie Smith is in it. Bette Davis is in it. Um. Really, really, really good cast. So yeah, I can feel a Christie episode. <laughs> I can, I, and I'm and I'm good with that because uh, some of them I've seen, some of them I haven't. 
So definitely see that if you can track down the 2015 um, version, it is superb, absolutely superb. And Charles Dance is a brilliant actor. Well, do brilliant now actor. we've now that we've veered off the uh, crystal plumage path. Completely, completely. <laughs> so before we wrap this bad boy up, is there anything else that we've missed? Is there anything else that you wanted that, that, that we need to sort of just touch on? Um. No, I was impressed by the uh, editor of his knowledge of birds and of Latin. <laughs> I was quite impressed yes! by that. <laughs> You'd want him on your team in a pub quiz. Yeah, yeah, he'd be the guy that knows, you know, the, the medical background of something, or he knows the the name of some obscure ter- ter- tuberculosis breakout in the 1870s or something. Yeah. You know, he'd, be, he'd be like that. <laughs> But again, I think anybody that's maybe you're just dipping your toe into Giallo. Yeah. You know, Blood and Black Lace, you'd go to Crystal Plumage, you know, then you'd start going down and you you might eventually get into Torso. And then, you know, then you'd eventually get into uh, Tenebrae. And then by the time you hit, was there a really good Giallo after Tenebrae? Oh. I think would you could would you consider stage fright a giallo? You could make an argument for it. You could. You could make an argument for it. Um like Stendhal syndrome, would you consider that a giallo? Uh, again, it's got elements. It I would say it's giallo adjacent. Yeah, it's it's you can't say proto cuz it's uh, post GL, you know, like it's in the ballpark. Yeah, I think. Or or, or dressed to kill. Would you argue that's an American Giallo? I would. I would say that. I would say that. I, th- I mean, most of Palmer, I think, I think that that certainly does sort of, sort of, um, does kind of like land on it. Um, you could probably argue cruising, William Friedkin. I haven't seen it, but I've heard good things. It, it, oh, it's, it's, I've not seen it for years, but it is it is dark. Very, very. Now, if very you want to go one that homages Giallo's, look up the editor. Yeah. And, that, and okay. if you if you know your your Giallo's, and then you watch the editor, uh, uh, uh was it Astron Six or Astron right. Five? Astron Five filmmakers, Adam Brooks. Okay. They do it. They do an amazing homage to it, but it's more on the comedic side. Yeah, I mean, like not not flat out comedy. It's not Jim Carrey, but it's, it's filled with it. It's a really. I think to be perfectly honest with you, yeah, I think you might be right in terms of the, like the last sort of like solid, flat out giallo. Tenebrae, I think, might be your unless you want to argue stage fright or or demons, but I wouldn't even go demons, no. No, no. no I that's think just that, a monster movie. Yeah, yeah. That's just a zombie film. I think you might be right. I think Tenebrae might uh, might be the my. I'm I'm kind of sort of like looking at my my list, and yeah. I mean, I, I mean unless there was like a Spanish Inferno. Inferno. What year? That's eighty. Nineteen eighty. It's quite a hard one to pin down, isn't it? Yeah. 
What it opera? Like, what what year was opera? Opera was that was nineties. Do I want to say that was in nineties? No, uh, no, eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. So if you want to argue that after Tenebrae, I you know again. Stage I think after fright. Tenebrae, it, I think it kind of goes. I think it starts falling yeah. apart at that point. Yeah. And I think as good as opera is. I think you can see the wheels are starting to creak a little bit in terms of Argento's filmmaking. I mean, on Fan- on Phantom Galaxy, Nathan and I uh, had a bunch of people on, and one of the films I reviewed was Amer, A M E R. Yeah, yeah. Which which has giallo esque um, homages, references, you know, allusions, but it isn't yeah. a straight out giallo. No, what and oh, there's another one. French filmmakers, they did um, Let the Corpses Tan. Yeah, that's that's a mer. That is a mer. Is yep. There is, um, oh, what is the one, the Tears? Tears something? I haven't seen them all, so I don't know. They they did one. Um, but yeah, I think the last great, I think Tanabra might be the last. So all, I mean, all that, you know, after all this consternation is, this is one of the ones that started the genre. Absolutely. In, in terms of importance, in terms of template, instead of in terms of the, your boiler model for it, this is your one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, like like we said before, there was Jaws before this, but I think this is the one that sort of blew it wide open, yeah. wide open. I mean, for that, I mean for from that. here, I think Baba was thankful for Argento because it gave him a new lease on life. You yeah. Know, you got you got some of your Fulci's, you got your Martinos, you got your Lenzies. You got even a, a, to a lesser extent Bruno Mattei, like they all. <laughs> well, you know. You gotta love Bruno Mattei though. Oh, Bruno Mattei, Bruno Mattei, give him, give him a, a two hundred fifty thousand dollars and some corn syrup and red dye and just go. Yeah, yeah, and you'll get thirty films out of him. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I reviewed not that long ago on Phantom Galaxy, the one Rats, Knights of Terror. Oh. God. <laughs> I found it I gave it a 6 out of 10 because I found it entertaining I mean it is entertaining as hell it really really is um, I mean the only reason I'm sort of cringing is um, I have a terrible phobia of rats oh okay. uh, I have a terrible phobia and, and of that rats. ending towards the end they think they're finally oh. getting saved and the guy takes the helmet off and you're yes. like oh my god <laughs> now, we're now turning into chud that's what yeah. we're now turning into yeah. <laughs> oh god Bruno would say Yes. Boy, on, boy, have we gone down that road. Yes, we we have veered off the path <laughs> well and truly. Bill, as always, it is an absolute pleasure. And we can't we can't leave it a year before we have to do before you come on again. So we're gonna yeah. have to we will have to get we will have to get our, our, we, we our will collective text back and together. forth. We'll text back and forth and we'll go, okay. Now, like every time you bring me on, we do good films. It's time to do a shite film. It's time yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of those kicking about. The fact that we also mentioned Bruno Mattei, so I think we might be on to something. (laughs) To heck with David Suchet. We want Bruno Mattei. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, my friend, thank you so much for being on. It is always a pleasure. Before we sign everything off, where can the good people find you? On the social medias and on the podcasting world. Onto the interwebs and all the other intergalactic yes. things that connect us all together. Yes. You know, anybody who wants to listen to me, look up on uh, Google Play, look up on Stitcher, look up on 
Apple Podcasts, Land of the Creeps, with my good friend Greg Morgan, Dave yes. Becker, and Pearl Morgan. All good people. Every couple of weeks, we come up with something. We Our next episode coming up will be our, each top five horror films of 1982. <laughs> so now you guys go long as well. On that well, the film, thing what we'll do is we each give our list, but we're not going to go into super in-depth reviews because we get Greg Bench, who sings in through three or four different phone calls, right? <laughs> And, but the listeners are great. We we get phone calls coming in. We're super laid back. So look up Land of the Creeps. And then with my really good friend and, you know, best bud, Nathan Bartlebaugh, we do Phantom Galaxy. Nathan was actually just mentioning yesterday that we need to have you back on, Hugh. Hey, so anytime. We'll anytime. get you back on. So Phantom Galaxy has horror, sci-fi, fantasy, anime, action, music, pretty much the X-Files he, uh, Nathan describes it as the Russian nesting doll of podcasts. It, it is. And it's a, well, you know, I mean, Land of, I think Land of the Creeps is quintessential listening to any horror fan for a start. And, you know, Phantom Galaxy is a superb show, superb show. So we welcome you know. all of all of your listeners that are maybe they're your students. Maybe they're in the base UK based. Maybe they're somewhere in the world because you have one of those five million dollar listeners. You, you've got them all over the place. Yeah, they are everywhere. They, so I, I actually looked the other day. I've got a, I had somebody listening in Vietnam the other day. Hey, awesome. Which yeah, was yeah. just like, which blew my mind. Well, well, it's funny. You know, every once in a while they'll say, hey, um, I, I, I ordered a Butcher Bill sweatshirt and he's living in Germany. Like it just blows yeah. your mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we welcome you all. You know, give us a listen. Make sure you listen to Hugh here. Hugh's fantastic. Oh, and thank you, anybody who has a podcast, I have a microphone. I'm willing to come on. <laughs> Bill, as always, it is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, my friend. As always, I want to say a huge thank you to my special guest, Bill. Just a pleasure to have you on. And fingers crossed you'll be back with us very soon. And we won't leave it for almost a year. Okay, up next we have got What the Wookiee Watched. And first up is Exorcism. At 60,000 feet from 2019. Let's check out the trailer. Have you ever witnessed an exorcism? I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Only to work together, the entity will show itself again. But where? I want to tell you one thing. I'm going to kill everybody on this plane. You've lost your faith. Oh, God is the everlasting light. I must warn you, Hercules. I'm a trained assassin with the Pharisee. You out of your freaking mind? No! No, that would be suicide. Everybody on board is in grave danger. Americans are always trouble, big troublemakers. How did you like your pea souffle? Oh, I. I don't feel so good. I think I'm gonna throw up. Use the vomit bag. I, I don't have one. Oh, God. 
Okay, that was the trailer for Exorcism at 60,000 feet from 2019. Uh, the synopsis for this bad boy is, On the last flight of a transatlantic passenger airliner, a priest, a rabbi and the airline crew team together to save a plane from a pandemic of demonic possessions. This was directed by um, Chad Ferrin. It's got a really, really strong cast, this. Uh, it's got uh, Robert Biano uh, as Father Romero, uh, Bailing as Amanda, Lance Henriksen as Captain uh, Howdy, Matthew May as Thang, Kevin J. O'Connor as Buzz, Bill Mosley pops up as Garvin, Adrian Barbeau as Mrs. Montague, Robert Ryan as Rabbi Larry Feldman, uh, Sylvia Spross as Sally, and Kelly Maroney as Miss Jenkins. Do you know what? With a cast like this, you would really, really hope that it was you're in for a real sort of treat. You've got some fantastic talent on display. Um, unfortunately, this horror comedy is really hit and miss. Well, I would say it's more missed than hit. Unfortunately, I didn't enjoy this one. And I hate saying that. I really, really hate saying it. The gags didn't land. The horror doesn't land. Um, great cast that was totally and utterly wasted. Um, sadly, this one is coming in at a 1 out of 10. And, um... Give it a miss, guys. Give it a miss. Okay, up next we have got Aztec Rex, a.k.a. Tyrannosaurus Azteca from 2007. Let's check out the trailer. Save your vigor for the trail. We should surmount the next ridge before we encounter. Onward! The glory of Spain! Gold and shade, mine to conquer. What was that? The thunder You provoke no eyes! You must atone with your blood. There's a chance to slay the animal. Too many lives have been lost. I accept your offer. Kill the Thunder Lizard or die in the attempt. You with me? I will go with Rios. You would fight at the side of a Spaniard? I like these odds. Let's go. May God be with you. From award-winning producers of Farscape. Go back to safety. No, I want to see the beast die. And Stephen King's Nightmares and Dreamscapes. You pay your Comes the movie event. Not possible. Of prehistoric proportions. <laughs> Ian Zering. <laughs> Aztec Rex. <laughs> Okay, that was the trailer for Aztec Rex. This one is about a band of 16th century conquistadors who must fight for their lives when they realise that they are soon to be sacrificed to a godlike T-Rex. 
Um, this is directed by the by, by Brian Tranchard Smith, because the man behind the seminal 1983 BMX Bandix, and of course the brilliant Ozploitation uh, movie from 1982, Turkey Shoot. Um, which I again I th- we covered way 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 back. Uh, I highly recommend that one. Uh, this one stars uh, Ian Zering as Hernan Cortez. Um, yeah, he was a co- I think he played he was in Beverly Hills 90210 in the original series. Um, Jack McGee, um, Daish and uh, Latchman, uh, Marco Sanchez. Kalani uh, Kwayopa, I hope I'm saying that right. I apologize for butchering that now. Um, William Shaw and Sean Lathrop. This slice of dino action, uh, of course, uh, debuted in 2008 on the Sci-Fi Channel. And you will be hard-pressed to find a dodgier-looking T-Rex, dodgier wigs, even dodgier accents and native costumes that are very much in the vein of uh, 2 million years BC. Aztec Rex is highly entertaining. Um, it has plenty of swash and just enough buckle to get you through uh, to get you through it. It keeps moving at a fairly brisk pace. If you enjoy a good Doug McClure movie, which I certainly do, um, very, this is very much in the vein of the likes of uh, The Land That Time Forgot from 1974. You will enjoy this one. You really will. It's very silly. Very, very silly. And in no way or shape or form should you go into this one with your brain switched on. And I think it's the very epitome of what a B-movie should be. Um, very gory at times, which is great. I don't, I don't know about very gory, but it's gory. Um, it's a lot of fun. And I'd give this one a 5.5, so it's definitely worth checking out. <laughs> Okay, up next we have got five from 1951. Let's check out the trailer. Everything for the taking. Michael, I want to tell you something. Why did you do it? Why did I do what? Get out. Get out now. In my own time. 
Couldn't we go back now? You little fool. I got you away. You don't think I'm going to take you back. Okay, that was the trailer for five from 1951. Uh, this one follows the story of five people who are miraculously saved um, after a nuclear uh, bomb has gone off and the rest of the world um, has perished because of its fallout. Um, it is directed by Arch uh, Obler. Um, it stars William Phipps. Uh, Susan Douglas, Ruby, uh, James Anderson, Charles Lampkin and Earl Lee. This is a great film. Um, I totally stumbled upon it. Um, it is strikingly atmospheric, eerie and at times outrightly bleak. Um, five is a really, really interesting take on the post-apocalyptic sort of uh, genre. Um, according to TM, uh, TCM's Robert Osborne, this is the first feature film to depict the aftermath of a nuclear holocaust. Um, be warned, there are no marauding bikers, um, there are no zombies or mutants. This is very, very much a character study. Um, and what we have here um, essentially is the remnants of a dying world presented in a stark, simple style. And um, I think it's fair to say that this is an interesting reaction uh, by an American filmmaker following the bombing of Japan. Um, you can see the influence of French New Wave starting to creep in uh, with the use of handheld cameras. Um, in particular, the scene shot um, in the Dead City, um, which would be replicated time and time again in other, in other films. Um, I would highly recommend this one and I think it would make an excellent um, double bill with Romero's original um, Night, of the, Night of the Living Dead. This is so good. It is really, really good. I think you can find it on YouTube. You can also find it on uh, Amazon Prime. Um, it's really, really good. It is so bleak at times. Um, and I wasn't expecting it. Um, I thought it was just going to be maybe maybe a little twee. Maybe, you know, some of the ideas in there are quite sort of dated. However, it is, this is such, um, it's a film that needs to be seen um, and shouted about a little bit more. So I'm kind of championing this one. So uh, that rounds up What the Wookiee Watched. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It's been an absolute blast. Um, I also want to say a huge thank you to my special guest, Bill Van Vegel, for being on. Don't forget, you can find Bill over at Phantom Galaxy with the equally awesome Nathan Bottlebaum. Um, and also, you can find Bill on the legendary podcast, Land of the Creeps, with my man Gregor Mortis over there and the gang. So, ladies and gentlemen, as our time draws to an end... All that is left for me to say is, in the immortal words of Count Duckula, good night out there, whatever you are.